Hi everyone, welcome to Brain Talks. I am Deborah Kahn, founder of Being Patient. Um, I'm really happy to announce today that we're gonna talk about um, a new technique. Um, it's actually using ultrasound to open the blood-brain barrier to treat diseases like Alzheimer's disease. We're excited to have a, um, with us Dr. Nir Lipsman from Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center, um, but he's currently joining us from the Alzheimer's Association Conference in Chicago. Dr. Lipsman, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So this was really, the announcement that you've made at the AAIC um, is that this is the first time ultrasound was used in human patients with Alzheimer's disease. So can you tell us exactly uh, what that study has shown? Sure, so um, basically you can use focused ultrasound, which is the, the tool that we're using. You can use it in two ways currently. So you can use high frequency ultrasound to uh, generate a permanent lesion in the brain uh, where you heat the brain tissue at a very focal point to generate a lesion uh, at that spot. And we use that for conditions like tremor uh, and some of the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. Uh, and you can also use ultrasound in a different way. And you use low frequency ultrasound so that you can focally open the blood-brain barrier. So the blood-brain barrier is a physical barrier. It's a physical obstacle. Uh, that's comprised of uh, a layer of cells that invests the very fine blood vessels of the brain. And the idea is that we have this barrier there for a reason, because it prevents large compounds and toxins, et cetera, from uh, getting into the brain uh, and, and harming the brain. But at the same time, it can also prevent a lot of useful things, potentially useful things, from accessing the brain as well. So the idea and the pursuit of a reversible and safe way to breach or open the blood-brain barrier um, has been sought after for many, many years because the idea is that you may have effective treatments, but you just can't get them into the brain in sufficient concentration. So what we showed um, in five patients uh, with Alzheimer's disease is that we can use ultrasound to safely uh, and reversibly open the blood-brain barrier in a very focal way. So that's a necessary first step to using this technology in the disease. So in the context of Alzheimer's disease, does that mean if you can open the blood-brain barrier, you can actually um, fight the plaques and tangles um, that are caused, uh, you know, that, that are present with Alzheimer's disease? So the answer uh, in short is yes, and we're looking at ultrasound in two ways. Uh, so the first way is to look at it as a delivery strategy, as a way that um, essentially, for lack of a better word, pokes a hole or creates a window in that blood-brain barrier temporarily so that whatever is traveling in the bloodstream, whether it's an antibody or some drug that you want to get into the brain, can be delivered more efficiently. So that's using ultrasound as a delivery strategy. But the second way is another potentially exciting way, and this is work that uh, was shown in animal models that it may be that you don't even need a drug. It may be that just opening the blood-brain barrier alone may permit the body's own immune system, the, the cells making up the body's own immune system, access to those amyloid plaques and may activate uh, cells in the brain that may help clear amyloid by itself. So there's the focus ultrasound alone track of research, and then there's the focus ultrasound plus a therapeutic track of research, and we're, we're actively pursuing both of those. 
So what does it exactly entail? Um, how, you know, what is the science of opening up the blood brain barrier? Um, is it, is it like a surgery using ultrasound? I mean, so to speak, but using sound waves, um, how invasive yeah. is that? So, so it's essentially non-invasive. So the actual procedure involves patients coming in uh, to the hospital. Uh, they have a frame basically attached directly to their head, directly to the skull with two pins in the front and two pins in the back. Uh, and then their head is placed inside a helmet and the lining of the helmet contains over a thousand individual ultrasound transducer elements. So a thousand sources of ultrasound. So with their head in the helmet, they go into the MRI scanner uh, and we use high resolution imaging to look at their brain to select which region of the brain we want to open the blood brain barrier in. But it's not enough to just apply ultrasound. What we need to do is we inject patients with a special contrast agent that contains microbubbles. So these are small uh, micro, micro bubbles uh, that contain gas, air inside, and they circulate throughout the body and they get to the brain. And when those microbubbles are exposed to ultrasound, they physically oscillate, they physically vibrate, increasing and decreasing rapidly in size. And that oscillation, that vibration will physically pull apart uh, the cells making up the blood-brain barrier. And it does so uh, temporarily for about six hours so that there's a six-hour window of opportunity to deliver whatever's in the bloodstream into, uh, into the brain. Okay, so we're getting some questions around this um, coming in now. Um, one person is saying, is the blood-brain barrier accessed via uh, uh, ultrasounds in the Parkinson's treatment that you mentioned? Um, which you, um, are there dangers in opening it? Can things like microbes get into it? That's a really good question uh, and actually essential to all of the work that we do. So safety is a primary issue, and that's why we did this phase one trial. So we know, for example, in the animal work, whether it's in Parkinson's animals or in Alzheimer's animals or, or even healthy animals, that when you open the blood-brain barrier with focused ultrasound, it looks like it's safe. So it looks like we don't cause any bleeding, we don't cause any swelling, we don't cause any introduction of anything bad into the brain. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that it's a temporary opening for only a few hours. And in the human work, we've now shown also that it also appears to be safe as well. So it looks like we don't see any bleeding on the brain or any swelling on the brain, even microbleeds, even microscopic bleeds that we will be able to detect on an MRI scan. And also patients themselves appear to do well as well. So we don't see any evidence of inflammation or infection or um, anything negative like that And when we follow them in the long run. So I have to ask this because um, when you say five people, that doesn't strike me as a lot of people to test this out on. For sure. No, it's a small study. It's one of the limitations, absolutely. But uh, five or six patients, and we've now treated six uh, with this in our, in our trial, that's actually a typical number for phase one trials of medical devices. So the medical device world is uh, distinct from the drug world. Uh, and in the device world, there are phase one study demonstrating that something is safe uh, and shows enough signal to continue to a larger study, those numbers are smaller and five or six is not atypical for those kinds of studies. So we have another question from a viewer saying, were there any side effects observed in the five or, or six, as you mentioned now, uh, people studied? So we did not, we did not actually, we didn't see any what we call serious clinical or other adverse events. And we define that as any re, any anything serious as anything you need to be hospitalized for, 
for example. So we did not see any bleeding. We did not see any swelling. Uh, patients um, didn't have any physical symptoms whatsoever from any of this. It didn't impact any of their brain function uh, that we measured. Um, so we did not see any effects. So there were minor ones, for example, discomfort with putting the frame on, as I mentioned, or being an MRI, in an MRI scanner for about two and two and a half hours. Uh, that can be tiresome and fatiguing for many patients. So those are temporary and what we call minor adverse events, but we did not see any serious adverse events. And all of, all of these patients were discharged on the first day after the procedure, and all of them uh, have expressed interest in participating in the next phase of the study. So as an indirect kind of measure for how well tolerated it was. So when the procedure took place, what is the duration of time that you monitored these patients for? And will you continue to monitor them, um, maybe looking for longer term side effects? Yeah, so we, we followed patients for two months after uh, their procedure. So we treated every patient in our study twice. Uh, the first time they came in with the procedure that I described, they had a small region of their brain uh, where the blood-brain barrier was opened. And then they came back a month later to have a slightly larger region of the brain opened uh, or, or the blood-brain barrier opened. Uh, and that's to demonstrate that the procedure is safe and that can be done repeatedly and reversibly uh, in larger volumes. And we followed patients for uh, a couple months after that on the assumption that most serious adverse events occur in uh, shortly after you treat patients and shortly after you operate on them. So we did not see that in the long term. And we remain in close touch with all of our patients and, and we know they're doing, they're doing well from a physical perspective uh, well after the procedure. So tell us, um, we're getting another question about the follow-up study, like just how, I, I think you said 30 people or so yeah. um, are going to be included in the next study. Um, are you going to take it a bit further? Is it going to look, are you going to look um, at maybe um, the actual treatment of Alzheimer's disease or is it the same study just on a larger group of people? Yeah. These are really great questions, uh, and you know we think quite a bit about this. So the larger study, as you said, will seek uh, aims to recruit thirty patients, and will treat patients multiple times, and will also treat multiple regions uh, of the brain that we know has amyloid and also tau in them. So the goal there is to obtain much more detailed safety data, tolerability data, feasibility data from a technical perspective. We're going to measure a whole bunch of things on these patients, both um, in terms of imaging and their blood and their spinal fluid and their clinical outcomes and all of these factors to try to better characterize their response. So again, we have two, you can think of it as two different pathways of research. One is the focus ultrasound alone um, path, and then there's the focus ultrasound plus a potential therapeutic path. And the two are not, the two are, are mutually exclusive. So you can pursue both independently uh, to try to see if one, uh, one might work. So, and, and another um, viewer has just asked, um, like what parts of the world uh, do you hope to test this on? Do you have to be in Toronto near Sunnybrook or um, are you gonna go out to, to different regions around the world? So our study is um, will be a, a Canadian study. It will recruit patients across Canada, but there is a study studying, starting in the U.S. It was just FDA approved uh, a couple weeks ago. 
the person that will help lead that study is a neurosurgeon. It's in West Virginia where it will be based. Ali Reza is the neurosurgeon, the name of the surgeon that will be uh, leading that study there. And it will be multiple centers which are going to come online soon in the U.S. So there will be a U.S. Uh, based FDA approved study for ultrasound um, as, uh, uh, as similar to what we're doing in Canada uh, in all dermal disease. So I want to talk a little bit about the two types of treatment. Um, one, you saying opening the blood-brain barrier, um, sending the sound waves in there um, may be enough, or actually targeting, um, sending medications in there that could be effective in combating, combating um, plaques and tangles. Tell us a little bit about those two, di the differences, and I mean, are you, you're, you're going to test both, it sounds like, or in, for future plans, um, but but will you first see if just the ultrasound on, on its own will work or is it necessary to really um, start, you know, is this aimed at, at, at testing medication? So uh, we're, we're going to first start with the focus ultrasound alone trial uh, because as I said, it may be that you don't need a drug. It may be that uh, ultra, the, act, the act of opening the blood brain barrier alone in regions of the brain where you know there is amyloid and tau may be enough to lower those. And we need to see if that's true and we need to characterize that response. Um, now in conjunction with that, if it looks like it's safe, um, we need to do some studies to potentially pair ultrasound BBB opening with, with a drug. Uh, and we need to make some modifications. So for example, if you're exposing the brain to increased concentration of a drug, you need to make some adjustments to that to the dose of that drug. So, so there are you know many more questions that need to be answered about uh, the drug track, including which drug uh, or which compound, in what dose, where do you apply it, and in whom. So there are a lot of variables there that we need to uh, certainly address. And but the first question needs to be: is is there uh, any therapeutic benefit potentially? to just using ultrasound alone. And that's uh, that, that's gonna be the next stage. Okay, and we had um, a question that, um, I think this is a really, really good question. Um, one of our viewers said, I'm interested to know, could this be tested on younger folks with strong family history, eventually leading to prevention at the very earliest stage? I'm reading that tau may be building up as early as in your, 20s and 30s, but most studies for treatments only accept ages 65 plus. As a 36-year-old with a family history, I'm extremely interested to on um, in any studies focused around my age group. That's actually a, yeah. a, a comment we hear a lot. You know, it's sure. the, the younger population tends to be excluded from a lot of these studies. Yeah, and um, I mean, the short answer is yes. I mean, our hope is to make this as broadly generalizable and applicable as possible. Um, but anytime you have a new device or a new tool, uh, the emphasis is always going to be appropriately on safety, on making sure that, you know, what we're doing isn't causing any harm. Um, oftentimes, uh, and I'm not sure if it's the case uh, with, with uh, the person who asked the question, sometimes people who have a younger onset illness have rarer or, or genetic forms of the illness and sometimes those impart some additional risk. So for example, in our next phase of the study, we exclude people who are um, homozygous for ApoE4, which is a genetic type of Alzheimer's where uh, there is excessive amounts of amyloid uh, buildup at, at younger ages potentially. 
And the reason is that there may be, at least a theoretical, but maybe a real increased risk of bleeding, of causing a, a brain bleed. And obviously, we don't want to do that. Um, once we accumulate more, the more data one accumulates on safety and ultimately efficacy as well, but mostly safety, the more confidence one can have about loosening restrictions at both age ranges, both at the low and at the high range. So it's really about experience and it's about gathering as much data as possible. So um, obviously beta amyloid is, um, you know, is a pathology in the brain um, of Alzheimer's. It's, it's um, one of the markers of Alzheimer's disease, but um, I wonder, you know, I've, I've been told we need a certain amount of, it serves a role um, in our, in our brains and our bodies for that matter. Um, so is there any risk of eliminating too much if, if you find that this is an effective way to reduce plaque in the brain? Is there, is there any worry that you could remove too much beta amyloid? Uh, not, not really. I mean, it's a waste product that we you know is constantly made and cleared. Um, the people that uh, we have treated, and because we see their their scans, we scan them with amyloid scans before, and we know that people with with Alzheimer's disease, their brains are absolutely full of amyloid. I mean, they are caked with amyloid, so clearly it's having a profound potentially uh, having a profound effect on on their brain. Um, and the most promising results from drug trials have shown that um, when they are effective, when antibodies are effective at the highest doses that are used in these trials, they do clear amyloid to the point where it converts somebody from amyloid positive to amyloid negative. So um, removing amyloid pre or preventing its occurrence in the first place is a major goal of the field. So um, what stage of Alzheimer's disease were the, the patients, the five or six patients that you tested? And what are you, in future trials, what stage of the disease are you aiming um, the trial at? So we, we enrolled patients in the mild to moderate range. Uh, and uh, to, to make that concrete, these are patients with MMSC or mini mental status examination scores of um, 18 or above. So we did not recruit people who were less than 18 uh, on that test. Again, as a safety strategy, we didn't want to recruit people who were too far along uh, in the illness. The goal ultimately, and I think I can speak um, for many people in the field, is to try to intervene as early as possible uh, in the illness. We know amyloid, for example, develops decades before people become symptomatic. So uh, if there's a strategy to intervene at earlier and earlier stages in a safe way, uh, then I think that's, uh, that's an important goal. And the thought behind that is that you will interfere with the progression of Alzheimer's disease because it's actually not until, I mean, it starts with the plaques, tangles, and then inflammation. And I believe in the inflammatory stage is when we actually start to see symptoms. So you're quite far along by that, that time. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. And in and all of the amyloid clearing or amyloid prevention trials are premised on 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 the amyloid cascade hypothesis, which itself is a is a, is a debate is a matter is open to debate in the Alzheimer's community, but has has dominated the therapeutic spectrum or the therapeutic field in Alzheimer's for for decades. And that's the idea that you get amyloid in that the position of amyloid. Uh, triggers a cascade of biochemical events leading to the deposition of tau, 
um, uh, which is another abnormal protein uh, inside neurons, and that leads to neurodegeneration and ultimately atrophy and, and, and brain dysfunction. Uh, we have another viewer who just asked, would this work for other neurodegenerative diseases, Lewy body, um, other types of dementia? So um, again, it's possibly. Uh -huh. And um, I think um, you know, the way that we view ultrasound, um, if it is safe, um, you know, that second, uh, I mentioned that second track of research, which is using it and viewing it as primarily a delivery strategy, then it's really up to, you know, the biomedical field to determine, well, what should we deliver? Uh, and if it's, for example, something in Parkinson's disease, maybe we want to deliver growth factors or maybe we want to deliver um, something to against alpha-synuclein, which is an abnormal deposit in Parkinson's, or, or maybe we'll want to deliver stem cells uh, in some instances that may be appropriate. So, um, so I think in short, um, there, you know, all bets are off in terms of um, what we can potentially use ultrasound for should it prove to be safe first, uh, and should it prove to be uh, effective at delivering what it is we want to deliver. Dr. Lipson, um, what is the biggest danger to this technique? I mean, what's the biggest worry? Um, you know, as you, I mean, I, I know that you've had some encouraging um, signs from that very first human trial with five to six people, but going forward, what, what is the biggest concern? So what we want to make sure, you know, we want more safety data and we want a, a broader range of patients. So the more people you treat, uh, the more varied those people will be. So we want to make sure that this is safe in all in in other age groups and older people and people with vascular risk factors and people maybe who are homozygous for APOE4. So. Um, you know, we have compelling safety data. It is true. We've done a first in human trial, but now we want to really better characterize what does a safety profile look like in more patients so we can start um, doing what, what are called sort of subgroup. We can look at subgroups and we can look at do some patients uh, uh, respond better or, or is it easier or harder in some patients or, or some, do some patients represent uh, an increased risk uh, versus others. So, so uh, the biggest, I wouldn't say it's a concern, but it's, a, it's an important question. Uh, and it's, you know, the idea of better characterizing uh, the technical aspects of the procedure, the safety aspects, and, and whether it's actually achieving what we want to achieve. Now, I'm presuming if it were Alzheimer's, um, it, in Alzheimer's patients, you're aiming it at the hippocampus. Is that, is that right? Or In the trial that we did, we, we didn't. We targeted um, a region in the right frontal lobe known, known as the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. So this is um, a region of the brain that we thought was uh, safe to open the blood-brain barrier and in the event that something bad happens, such as a bleed or swelling. Now, of course, every brain region is important, uh, but some are more important than others. So we want to stay far away from critical motor structures or speech centers, vision centers, basic vegetative centers, things like that. So just in case something bad happened. But ultimately, uh, for the next phase and for future trials, we would target, now that we have safety data, uh, what we call eloquent regions of the brain. So uh, yes, cognition, memory centers, such as the hippocampus uh, and other parts of the brain responsible for vital functions. So um, 
uh, this comes up all the time when there's a new procedure like this, where it looks like there could be promise. Obviously, a lot more testing has to happen um, to to determine that. But what's the time frame in in all of this? Um, how long do you think it will be before you possibly have an answer? And does a technique like this have to go through the long process, um, you know, of FDA approval? Um, what what is the whole time timeline for this? No, it's a, it's, it's a really good question, and, and sometimes it can seem like it's taking forever. Uh, but, of course, uh, we need to remember that those um, regulations are in place for a reason, and ultimately they're there to protect patients uh, and uh, protect researchers and protect institutions, et cetera. So, in short, uh, the answer is yes. Uh, of course, we need to go through a very rigorous uh, regulatory and scientific process to show that, in fact, it's safe and effective. So in the medical device uh, world, it's no different uh, than the drug world. We have phase phases of trials. Phase one is gonna be a safety study. Phase two trials are gonna be additional safety, but also important efficacy data, which means uh, measures built in to show that it's actually doing what it's supposed to be doing. And then there's gonna be a phase three trial where ideally you would compare a treatment or a device to either the gold standard or to a placebo arm to definitively establish that you're getting the therapeutic effect you want to get. So that timeline varies, of course, but we're talking about uh, on the order of years, uh, absolutely, uh, before uh, we can really see if this has legs as a, as a uh, potential strategy for Alzheimer's. But so what I will say, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. But what I will say is that, you know, ultrasound, the, the power of this technology is that it is neutral to what you want to deliver. Uh, so, um, you know, if it's approved as a delivery strategy, then you can do multiple trials with multiple different kinds of therapies to see which ones uh, may be effective and which ones more than others, et cetera. So, so we're, we're sort of in uncharted territory in terms of um, in terms of focused ultrasound and what its role could be in, in neurodegenerative illnesses and in Alzheimer's specifically. So when you talked, um, when you told us about, you know, just the technique itself on its own and then also aiming certain medications using focused ultrasound, um, what type of medications are you talking about? Do those need to still be developed or are there existing ones that could be tried? So there are many existing ones, uh, and we heard some early exciting results in Chicago at this meeting about some uh, what are called monoclonal antibodies. So these are antibodies that target amyloid. Uh, so there are uh, medications out there, IV drug infusions in the form of antibodies that are, are done either monthly or twice monthly, uh, where the goal is to uh, deliver antibodies to target amyloid, to break them down and help them be cleared. So uh, the problem with antibodies, of course, is that they are several thousand times larger than the typical substance that can cross the blood-brain barrier. So we're only able to get one or 2% of those antibodies into the brain. So if one can enhance that fraction uh, even more, then maybe we can do, do better. Uh, maybe we can do, you know, clear more amyloid. Maybe we can uh, try antibodies against tau. Uh, maybe we can deliver uh, growth factors to support neurons that aren't quite so far gone uh, to nurture them back to health, so to speak. So, um, you know, it, so to answer your question, it's both existing uh, drugs and also ones that have yet to be developed. 
Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of the Alzheimer's Association Conference in Chicago to really um, tell us more about Focus Ultrasound. Um, obviously, it's still early days. A lot more testing has to happen. Um, it's exciting in the sense that it's a new way of thinking about treating Alzheimer's, but you know, only time will tell. I think we have a, a long way to go in terms of um, determining if this is actually an effective treatment, um, but we, we wish you every luck um, and, and hope for success in your research and please do keep us posted um, as the trial moves on. Will do and thanks so much for your interest. Happy to uh, join you. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Dr. Lipson. Thank you.